Alrighty, everybody, welcome back. Today we are going to be talking about another book again. It's time to start reading. <laughs> no, but seriously, today we're talking about The Labyrinth of Drakes. Uh, so, I'm really excited about this book. Uh, I had been setting it aside to listen to while on audiobook I got from the library, and I was just like, let's just listen to this, and I just, mm, I loved it so much. So, for those of you who don't know, The Labyrinth of Drakes is part of the Memoir of Lady Trent series. Um, a great book, a great, like, science fiction, sort of like science fantasy dragon series, because it's heavily into, like, the study of dragon biology and stuff like that, by Marie Brennan. And if you haven't read the first three books, or, you know, listened to my reviews on them, I highly recommend you do both those things, because, you know, I can always use the traffic. Uh, <laughs> but, um... You know, if you just want to hear my opinions on the book beforehand, I can go ahead and just, you know, we're going to have a non-spoiler section, so don't feel bad about that. But, um, so, for those of you who don't know, the series so far is about uh, Marie Brennan, and she is a dragon naturalist, or dragon biologist, uh, and the entire world, her entire world is almost like a sort of, like, I don't want to say it's a completely unique world, because a lot of the countries seem to be, like, heavy stand-ins. Like, there's not one-to-one, -one, but they seem to be, like, a mixture of various cultures. It's like, oh, clearly the area with the feathered serpents is meant to be, like, a South American kind of con continent area. Um, you know, this is a clear... She's clearly from, like, a, a pseudo-British society and stuff like that. Um, so the world is very familiar while both being while also being, you know, different in terms of names and alliances and stuff like that. Which means you don't always know exactly who's who. Like, because if, you know, if it were just like a one-to-one, -one, this was just like an alternate history thing, like, we'd have a clear idea of, like, who we should be rooting for and against, like, you know, the, the, we'd have a sort of real-world basis for natural alliances and like that. By distancing the names, I feel like the book gives a lot more mystery and you start having to think about who's your ally, who's your enemy, what the political situation is, how it's going to affect her research, stuff like that, which is a lot more interesting than just a historical, uh, alter, oh, like an alternate history thing, I think. Um, so basically she was like a nobleman's daughter. She, you know, was expected to just get married, but instead she wanted to study dragons. Eventually she did marry, but she married this, you know, guy who was like a, also a dragon naturalist of sorts. And he and her went to go on this expedition. Um, super spoilers for the first book, but you know, it's just the first book. I see this is the problem. I want to talk about this book without spoilers, and I said I was going to at the beginning of this, but like as I started talking about this, the first three books I could talk about without spoilers for the most part. I really could. But this book is so heavily reliant on the stuff that came before, I'm not sure I can, but I will do my best to talk about it without spoilers. So, ignoring the plot up to this point, um, Basically, they found a way of preserving Dragonbone. This is something that's found in the first book, and I'm sorry, that's a little bit of a spoiler for that, but I have to do that so you understand. Um, and in the third book, people start weaponizing it, and so they need to have start a dragon breeding program. Because their big thing is they want to keep it secret so it wouldn't spread to the other countries, and they wouldn't start hunting down dragons. So now their choices are either synthesize a artificial version of the bone, which they failed doing, but their country is working on, and, or learn how to breed dragons so that they can raise some in captivity and their, the natural dragon populations won't be hunted to extinction. Um, and they're trying, they're basically erasing at the clock. Um, the scientist who had originally been working on the project has been, um, has, you know, re retired, re you know, thrown his arm, said, I can't do it, left, and disavowed himself. 
and they asked um, Isabel, um, Lady Trent's partner, Isabella Camhurst is her name, uh, so her partner, or not like her husband, but like her research partner, um, what's his name? Uh, Tom Wilker, that was his name, that was his name. So Tom Wilker uh, and her was invited to take up the project, and he agreed only if Isabella could. Um, and so they were a little worried, though, that since it was, like, a big noble and Tom isn't exactly a, like, he wasn't exactly a noble birth. He got this position because he had a, a sponsor. Uh, that's why he's a scholar, a naturalist, and part of, like, the many societies. Because, again, we're, we're very much in, like, Victorian London area. So, you know, those societal rep- uh, representations of, uh, you know, Isabella's responsibility, she's considered kind of odd because although she did like great service the country in the third book and she's like a um you know she got like pseudo knighted basically but she's dame isabella now but even as a result of that because of her eccentricities you know being a woman who became a naturalist dead husband a child she doesn't really see much aside from the voyage she went on a few years ago she's you know not exactly looked in the best light and a lot of the country have like a lot of bad rumors about her um, and so the two of them, while heavily respected for their work, aren't exactly respected as, like, members of society, and the story plays into their roles, and how what they want to do and how what they try to do is never enough, um, how if other people had done half the things they had, you know, they, by their very position, they would be, find it easier to, uh, find sympathetic voices and resources to continue their work. But they still take this offer because even though it looks like they're just looking for a fall guy, so like, you know, if like a year later, they might, they might only get like a year, but a year working on this project could still yield a lot of valuable data. So they go ahead. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, intrigue with kidnappings and poisoning and political maneuvering. And there's the other country that, uh, has been hunting dragons for their bones, trying to, you know, kill and kill them and sabotage their research or capture them. Um, and also a lot of really interesting things that you learn about dragon biology and the ancient draconian civilization that seems to know something about the, what they were trying to accomplish. Uh, the ancient draconians are sort of like a pseudo-ancient Egypt, but they were like a world-spanning empire at one point. And they had apparently... Okay, well, I'm not going to tell that because that's spoilers. But uh, they learned some very important things about dragons. And, I mean, it's very clear. You learn some really shocking things in the third book. Um... And that's about all I can say on the plot without going into too many spoilers. For those of you who did list my third book, though, we do get to see Sue Hale again. He's the uh, archaeologist who studies the Draconian civilization that we met in the third book. He's a really fun character. I really like him. His, him and Isabella have a really good dynamic. Um, and it works out very well for them, actually. This whole book does. They kind of get to uh, finally break free of a lot of social conventions that's restrained them near the end. So I like that for them. They, they're fun. They're fun characters who both don't really like the positions they've been forced in by the nature of their births, who hail due to his responsibilities to his family, Isabella, because she's a woman who wants to pursue a career as a naturalist. Uh, I do look forward to seeing what her son Jacob says about this in the end, though, because that's going to be interesting. I hope we get to see more of him in the fifth book, because we don't really get to see much of him in this book at all, which is kind of disappointing, I gotta say. So, yeah. Alright, that's all I can say without spoilers. Everyone who doesn't want spoilers, you know, go read these books, go listen to them. I guarantee your libraries. Uh, fun fact, most of your libraries probably have an app. Uh, EBR does, but I'm not sure about others, but I know a lot of libraries now will have an app and you can literally just download the audiobooks and listen to them whenever you're like not busy or doing something that doesn't require a lot of attention, like driving or something. Just, uh, you know, keep them on the background, listen, and then come back. Alright? We're all good? Cool. So. 
uh, after the third book with the whole, you know, Kyligas, the, uh, you know, airship things, uh, the scouting airships made from dragon bone because it's lightweight and extremely durable after the preserving method was leaked. Um, the Scaling government is desperate for to build Kyligas on their own, but the dragons they've been able to preserve are um, too small. The government also doesn't have any natural dragons in their own territories, and as a result, they've been forced to realize that if they start hunting dragons, eventually they'll be too, come too rare a resource, and they're already behind on building these things anyway, so they'll probably end up with a smaller amount. It's not really out of love for dragons they do it, but, you know, it's good that they're at least thinking about, hey, maybe we shouldn't run this, bleed this resource completely dry. Uh, they're not always portrayed in the best light, but, you know, what do you gotta do? Uh, so Isabella and Tom get sent over to this new country. Um, I forget the, oh, Akia, 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 that's the name of it. It's like a desert country, has some very, um, what is it, like, Middle Eastern vibes to it, if you get my drift. Um, which kind of makes sense with the parallel that the ancient Draconians were very in, like, a very Egyptian parallel society. Like, their big thing was their gods were dragon-headed gods. Um, and they mysteriously disappeared, and they even literally find in the second book what is essentially the Rosetta Stone of the Dr Draconian Empire. They're not all study subtle with the fact that this is meant to be, like, the ancient Egypt stand-in, okay? Um, and so it makes sense that it'd be in that area, because Egypt's right over there, so I guess that makes sense. It's still unclear to me if the actual world, like, because I, I don't think I've ever seen a map for this, so I'm not sure if the entire world is, like, the same geography as ours or not um but that would be interesting to find out i would really like to see a map of this this world to determine if, like is this just our world but dragons create an entirely different history because if so cool on the writer for an object um maria brennan is a really good writer and she you know what people read her stuff she has even more books after this like she apparently continued the series after these five books uh and i'm definitely gonna read the sequels uh <laughs> so yeah this is a really fun series, really fun characters, and we get to find out some really interesting thing about dragons' biology, like how they're affected by the egg's development is affected by heat, and they eventually find out near the end of the book, like super spoilers for this, that the dragons um, adapt to their environments based on like how their eggs are handled and their heat, these and causes mutations in the egg. Now, if they're in the same environment that their parents were in, the mutations will be mostly like minor to non-existent, but when in severely different areas they will mutate now these mutations usually result in deformities or death but every like you know dozen or so you'll get one that survives and it's sort of like the dragons have their own accelerated uh evolutionary component like they have like a certain emergency evolution that's really really like basically if they're in environments where they would usually die instead of just outright dying they attempt to adapt to the environment but they usually die in the eggshell or right after they're born or they're born with a lot of deformities and dies all of that it's really clear that their their genes are just super unstable as a result of this, if, unless they're in the same environments from, you know, laying to hatching, um, which is why the dragons are always so careful with how they lay, where they lay, and stuff like that, as Isabella follows them. And uh, it also explains some of the things like how the river, dra the mud dragons from that swamp of Moulin uh, had such that weird hatching, which apparently is just a mutation built on the Swamps of Moulin. That was the environment, and this is how they adapted over time to live in there. Uh, it basically allows dragons to more easily adapt to any sur surroundings. 
which I find really interesting. It's a, it's a good way to explore why the uh, Draconians, dragons, aren't around anymore. I'm not sure it entirely holds up as science, but we're already working with dragons, so we're already on a level of fa- fantasy to begin with. So, you know. Um, yeah. It's cool. Uh, I do like a lot of things they learn about the Draconian civilization. Uh, just, like, whenever Suhail and Isabella are the same, like, together, it's just so much fun watching them, like, explore and bounce off each other. And as they, you know, explore this dragon's nest, Isabella will unearth the Draconian relic and he'll, you know, go take over and start directing their efforts. And it's, I really just love their dynamic. They're two very interesting characters. Suhail obviously has this deep abiding love for, you know, history, specifically the Draconian civilization. We even find out why, because as a kid, he used to, uh, he spent a lot of time with some of the more nomadic tribes of his country and out there, there are a lot of draconian ruins. And so as a kid, he used to explore these ruins and develop a massive fascination. And there's this wonder and awe they, that uh, Marie Brand is really able to bring to all the scenes with the draconian ruins. Because the fun fact, the Labyrinth of Drakes, the title, you know, the title location of the book, is this massive location of like cans and stuff like that that's very susceptible to flooding. And, you know, tons of dragons and predators, very dangerous in the middle of the desert. But it's also home to, like, one of the world's grandest draconian ruins. Like, it's so much draconian stuff out there. And as they're exploring it, they really do get the sense of, like, yeah, I can understand if I was a kid living out here, I might have, you know, not become a dragon naturalist. I might have become a historian, too. Uh, and I do love that perspective. Because a lot of the series has been about characters who have an intense uh, desire to learn and understand something about uh, a part of them, a part of either their childhood or an interest they love that... Um, you know, they have this, they have this spark. They just need to know more. And it's really cool. They, you got this in the third book too, with Isabel realizing that her son, unlike her, where she had like found a fascination with dragons and all things with wings, uh, her son felt, found a lifelong love of the ocean and ship's life. You know, so like you get to see this spark in every character. Suhail has it. Tom has it. Isabella has it. Her son has it. Uh, her husband, James had it as well. It, it really is like the central binding theme of this uh, story is that the pursuit of knowledge, as long as it's something you love, as long as you pursue that which you love, you'll find happiness in life. Even if it's not always obvious at first, even if it's difficult and there are obstacles and even people say, no, follow what you believe in. And you know what? I can get behind that message. It's a really good message. Really fun story. So, yeah. Um, throughout this, there's some things like Isabel gets kidnapped and dragged through and jeez, there is just a brutal, like, warning for those of you who, like, are get about icky with, like, burns and uh, infections and stuff like that, because they go through some brutal stuff when they're kidnapped. They get, like, dragged through the desert for days. Their son, their, like, uh, Tom's back gets, like, blistered to the point where he can barely move by the sun's rays. They get, like, you know, just thrown away in a, you know, chained up, uh, tied up the whole time, imprisoned. Uh, they even get beaten when they attempt to escape right before they're rescued. Uh, Isabella had her her feet burned and she can barely stand for most of it. Uh, you know, she's trying to be brave. She's trying to hold on for Tom. And Tom's like, look, if we get a chance to escape, you have to run. I'm not going to be able to run. You're going to have to run. There's this horrible time. There's this horrible moment where he says, look, they're taking us tomorrow. I, We don't have time. We can. One of us can get away. You can get away. So what I need you to do. Because I need, I'm going to make a distraction. I need you to run. Do not worry about me. Run. And it's really sad too, because I, I could totally see, I've seen them killing him off in that scenario. Uh, 
they didn't hold any punches with James, and I get the feeling that he could have died. You know what? That was that was genuinely like really impressive of him. And the thing was, he wasn't even asking for Isabel to let him die because he was just gonna be kidnapped. They were clearly handing them over to someone, possibly their enemies. Um, he was gonna be a prisoner, but he did not want Isabel to do that. He's like, it's not about you being a woman. It's not about you being weaker. It's about I'm the only one. You're the only one who can run. If I could run, I would hope you would ask this of me. One of us has to get back and warn the others. Maybe you can say, this is the only way you, you might be able to save both of us, but at least guarantee, you know, you'll be safe. Um, and he's kind of been her confidant. Like, ever since their sponsor died in the second book and her husband died in the first book, they're the last two members of that faded expedition in the first book where they found out about dragon bone preservation. They're the last two of that historic moment that has since changed the world, you know? And they've been there through, with each other through all this, trying to find a solution, trying to mitigate the damage, trying to work um, through it and go on this journey of discovery to avert catastrophe. And it's, you know, it's really touching. Now, granted, they do get saved. Sue Hale manages to rescue them, partially thanks to Isabel's escape, even though they get captured and beaten. It was thanks to the, her escape that they learned which tent they were being held in, so they were able to sneak in at the night and, you know, rescue them. Uh, oh, we also get to spend time with Isabel's brother in this book, too. He's a lot of fun. Yeah. He's part of the military now, but he's always, like, she, he seems like the only person, is aside from Tom, Isabella can just, like, talk to, like, a normal person. So their interactions are really cute, uh, especially since he was, like, one of the only members of their family that actually, you know, believed in her um, and her dream. She He was very supportive, you know, always sneaking books and things she wasn't allowed to have because, you know, he was okay for he, him to grab those things. He would always let her borrow them. Um, so... That's my opinion on the book. Really good. Nice twists. Good scenes. Intense drama sometimes. Uh, the stuff with, like, the assassins and the kidnappers were really fun. The revelation at the end of the book where they discover the ruin is fantastic. Uh, the descriptions of the ruins in general were just really good work. I loved that. And the dragon biology stuff was, always, as always, really interesting. Like, there's always a part of me in all these books. It's like, okay, I get it. It's this very touching human drama. Like, can we get back to the dragons for a second? And then every once in a while, Isabel will be like, oh, they keep talking about politics. I wish we could just get back to the dragons. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. A character who understands my perspective. <laughs> I really do feel like half the time when she's like, I wish I could just study dragons already. I'm like, I wish you could do that too. But we have to deal with this, unfortunately. Uh... So yeah, highly recommend the series. It's getting better and better with every book. Uh, seriously, I think if you like, if you can get through the first book, they're just getting better and better. I, I, I don't know how she does it, but you know, Marie Brennan is great. Cannot recommend enough. So yeah. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and thank you for listening to the Dragon's Library. Please subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes. The Dragon's Library releases new episodes Tuesday and Friday each week, and you can follow us on Twitter at dragon underscore library 2. If you want to suggest an episode topic, my email is in the description below. As always, thank you so much for all your support.